Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. As pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe that the enemy is after your mind and heart, so we're stepping into the fray. Today, we invite you to join us for a Christian discussion of the family, which the Bible shows is a fundamental part of God's plan for humanity. But what is God's design and purpose for the family? And how does our culture view roles and relationships in the home? And what benefits can the culture and the church gain from Christian families devoted to following God? Welcome to the conversation. Hey, we're all back together again today to take another crack at a faith and culture conversation. We've been discussing together what we've called first principles, these sort of immovable facets of reality that stem from God's design. And we find those elements of our reality, um, those truths, uh, clearly articulated in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And so today I want us to talk a little bit about another first principle, another thing, another issue that comes up in the first few chapters of Genesis that kind of controls the narrative, uh, all of the narrative of Scripture. It's controlled all of the narrative of human history, and it continues to be an issue that's at the crosshairs of the culture war right now. And so I think it's important we address the topic of the family. I see the family as being... Um, I see it being central to God's purposes for the created order, the nuclear family, Uh, a husband and wife, a father and a mother, and their children working together to, I think, what the the Jews would call identify the world, to push the boundaries of Eden outward and... uh, tame the wilderness, so to speak, and provide order, do what God was doing in the very beginning, provide order from chaos. Um, I think that's all sort of part and parcel of what God willed for the family. Do you guys see the family as being in the crosshairs of the culture war right now? And, and if so, how do you see the family showing up? How, how are we fighting over the families in our, in our culture today? The short answer that has to be yes. I, I think it comes from a lot of different places and a lot of different approaches. I think there's a lot of legal challenges to what it means to be a family now in terms of the Obergefell decision, um, and I believe it was 2015, uh, which legalized uh, gay marriage, making the definition of marriage broaden out to something that the Bible never gave to us. Um, I see this in the way our culture talks about children. Um, the children are not something that the marriage uh, relationship should pursue. Um, I see it even in very simple things, especially um, in talks maybe on social media a lot, which is kind of interesting when you hear what I'm going to say, that the family is something that we can sort of define for ourselves, that it's not something we're given, but something we choose. You know, it kind of comes up in a lot of movies, a lot of TV. It's your family are the people you choose to surround yourself with. You know, your people are the, your family are the people who stick around when you need them. Um, And I think that's a really dangerous way of talking about family because it turns family into this sort of blob, this social blob, instead of something that God gives us as a design for our good. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think you see it in their school system, our public school system. Parents are being told that um, they don't have the right to educate their their own children. Uh, that that's better done by those that are in in the schools. And uh, I know we have some godly teachers out there, but the system as a whole seems to be targeting the family and and um, trying to strip parents of their God-given right and obligation to raise their kids in um, the ways of the Lord. And so I see that as a major attack today with some of the stuff we're seeing in the headlines. And, um, you know, I read yesterday two dads were arrested uh, for being at a school board meeting just objecting to some of the stuff that's being taught. <laughs> and um, it's just crazy. I mean, it's uh, you think it was a bad dream, but it's not, you know. Mm-hmm. I would add to that the the way that we're not really allowing parents to parent really in any realm. I know this is Canadian law, not necessarily American law, but in Canada there's certain things you can't teach your child. Um, you can't tell your child that they are the gender that they're born with and that if your child decides that they are transgender, um, that can be grounds for taking that child away from the home. Um, and so the whole idea that a parent has a God-given right and responsibility to parent um, is something that our culture really doesn't seem to believe anymore. Do you believe that conditions in our society today, and based on your answers, I'm going to assume, I'm going to presume I know the answer to this, but do you believe that conditions in our society today are such that they make it more likely for families to thrive or less likely for families to thrive? We may need to talk about a little, you know, in, in conjunction with this question, what does it mean for a family to thrive? But um, how would you answer it, are, are we are is society set up for for the good of family or for the good of something else? I don't think society is set up the way it sits for the good of family, but I do think on one side of it, it is a wake up call, uh, and so it may uh, be a sobering reminder of the responsibility moms and dads have, and I mean they'll have to make some decisions when it comes to their children, education wise. If you just look at that. Uh, part of their their upbringing but um yeah i think it you know sometimes when you have things being stripped from you and you see the kind of stuff that's going on uh it's a wake-up call Mm -hmm. moms and dads start getting a little more serious um as they should about the things that their children are being exposed to and and just the role they have before god as as christian parents and so uh, there can be some good that comes out of it that, that causes us to be about the business the Lord's called us to. But uh, as a whole, I think society uh, has pitted itself against uh, what the Lord's design is for us as the family. So much of what we've discussed already in this this podcast series since we since we started doing this several months back, I think touches has. You know, it, really, each of these things are wrapped around one tendril of the the central question, which is the family, whether it be gender, or work, or identity, or sexuality. You know, um, all of these social media, you know, digital the digital frontier and the the realms we exist in today. I think all of these things are swirling around this central question of the family. So, give it for instance on on social media. There's this um, tendency that t- all technology has to have a reversal. So, media critics would call that the reversal of technology. You know, you take take for instance the the wall, building a wall around a city. 
in medieval times, that was a form of technology that was designed to keep bad guys out, right? But when there's a fire in the city, the technology reversed upon itself and it actually trapped you in. And so technology has these unforeseen reversals. The, the designed intent of social media, for instance, was to bring the far near, to bring those who are outside your realm inside your realm. So people you wouldn't normally keep in touch with, you can now then therefore keep in touch with. You're in more ongoing and regular r- relationships with folks that aren't in your immediate um, sphere, like aren't in the room with you, in other words. The reversal, though, the unintended reversal of that technology was that it pushes the near far, to the extent that in many cases you see families sitting in living rooms or around dinner tables out at restaurants and everyone's on their cell phone, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa included. Everyone's on their cell phones engaging with somebody who's not there with them. Um, because it, what's out there somewhere else in the digisphere <laughs> um, is... We should mo- create a platform that's ours called Digisphere. Yes. And, and raise all the money that we need yes. for this. I think that's probably a good idea. I think that's going to be a huge success, um, the digisphere. But it, what yeah, what it make the metaverse look like a loser? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what we're trying to do. Um, you know, but it makes it makes the people that are out there and the problems that are out there so much more immediate. It casts the illusion of th- those things being immediate, but the actual immediacy of your own family, the people in your lives, gets pushed to the periphery, and so you're not paying attention to the people who are actually there. You know, so I don't think, I, I guess I would, if I'm answering my own question, I'd say, no, I don't think society is geared toward the flourishment of the family. I think it's the opposite, in fact. Well, we, we see that not only in the technology we use, but even just the structure of our time spent in the week. You know, I talk to, I talk to families a lot who their whole week is dispersion. They're going places and none of them are going to the same places. There's you know, this child's soccer practice and this child's choir concert and uh, dad has this event and mom has this event. None of that's bad. Those are all good things. It's, you know, it's a way for us to develop interests and uh, create skills and all this wonderful stuff. But what it means is that the majority of the time for the American family is spent apart. And then the only times we spend together are you're sleeping. (laughs) So you're not really interacting at all. Uh, Hopefully you're sleeping at least some of the time. Um, or you're eating, and when you're eating, you're probably consuming some form of media like uh, your Netflix account or just on your phone. And so most of the time even spent together as a family is actually spent just getting everyone to the point where they can leave each other alone. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the time spent just in school or at work. Right. Um, so there's no real commonality of experience. Or, or any real shared endeavor. No. I find increasingly yeah. husbands and wives occupy completely unrelated careers. You know, you've got um, kids pursuing their own ends in schools off, like Van, to your point, being educated by who knows whom about who knows what. Um, and, and you're not supposed to have any say in that mm-hmm. as a parent. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Um, so we've got, you know, we, we have this disassembling of the family in our culture. And it's, go, it's gone back probably a few centuries now we could trace it through um through our own western history i think the industrial revolution had a big impact on the disassembly of the family um 
because it was really the Industrial Revolution that gave birth to state school systems, and um, it was the death of the family economy in many ways, and the small town economy. Um, but, but, but I want to, before we go too deep down that rabbit hole, I want us to look back at Genesis a little bit so we can capture not just what the problems are with the family, but what God's original intent for the family was. You know, when we, when we talk about the scriptures, you can look at these epics in scripture. Some would call them, um, um, I didn't sleep much last night. What's the word? Um, the seven dispensations. Someone call them uh, uh, these seven, you know, unique dispensations of God's dealing with mankind. Others find unique covenants throughout Scripture where God makes these unique and special covenants with different key figures, federal heads. We could say throughout throughout Scripture. Um, some people find these two ideas to be competing. I don't think they have to be. I think that in fact, there's probably a lot of agreement in in some of what they see and talk about. But one of the first covenants we see in Scripture is the uh, Adamic covenant the one that we have through Adam. Um, would anyone like to take a crack at talking a little bit about the Adamic covenant or the Adamic covenant? Um, what God covenanted with Adam? And, and then answer this question, does it still apply low these many years later? <laughs> yeah, so the, the covenant that God made with Adam was... Uh, immortalized in the words, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. This was given to both Adam and to Eve because in Genesis 1, 26, he's already mentioned that they're made male and female. So this is sort of like the big, uh, the big picture, God's summary of what happened when creation, uh, when humanity was first created. And so there's a lot of different little elements in there. There's first uh, be fruitful. So the command to make more humans and not just make more humans. So, you know, kind of the first responsibility of of the of the family given to them was we want this family to be perpetuating life to actually create more people but not just create more people create more image bearers of god that the goal is not just to fill the earth with people but to fill the earth with image bearers of god people who reflect his character and his purpose in the world um so there's that there's the idea of dominion meaning that you have a responsibility you talked about shared purpose ben the idea that a family's meant to do something together uh he basically gave Adam and Eve the first like Swiss Family Robinson adventure. He said, "All right, I'm going to give you this wild place, and you, as a family, need to uh, tame what you need to tame and to cultivate what you need to cultivate, so that this is a place for human flourishing and for my glory to be revealed." Mm-hmm. Um, from there, he goes to the idea of uh, filling the earth. So it's not something you do just in your corner, but you're actually spreading out um, to make God's mission extend to all places, to all peoples. Um, and what's really interesting about this is he says, uh, he gives them the garden as a response to that. He says, I'm going to m- give you this mission, and I'm going to give you this place to belong, this like safe space, you might say. It's almost like he gave them the first home in the Garden of Eden. He says, this is a place where your needs will be met, where you will have uh, relational intimacy, which we see in Genesis chapter 2, um, not only with God, but with one another. Um, and so this, to me, becomes sort of the first paradigm of the home. You could call it... You could call—so uh, I love that description. Uh, everything you said is, I think, is spot on. Um, whether, whether or not we call the garden a safe space may have something to do with uh, how we understand God's charge to keep it um, from, from someone who may be prowling around. Yeah. Well, some, to, you know. well, to keep it safe. Yeah. So it might, it might, have, more, it might have been the arena— within which um, their struggle would, would take yeah. place. Um, the drama of their obedience. 
to God and, and their shared endeavor would, would take place. Michael Heiser describes the Garden of Eden in his book, The Unseen Realm, really interesting book. If you haven't read it, he describes the Garden of Eden as the earthly equivalent of God's heavenly counsel. He, he believes the intent for the Garden of Eden was to be the meeting place of those God has placed in dominion over this, over this world. So it, when you read about the family and, and what Kyle was talking about, or you read about the Adamic covenant, it makes the point that it sort of defines man's crea- role, relationship, humanity's relationship with creation as being a relationship of dominion, and that what God was doing with human beings in the world was placing them in charge of the created order and in a role of dominion in the same way that he placed spiritual heavenly beings in charge of various facets. And when you read all through the Old Testament about God's heavenly council gathers and they he holds court, essentially. And, With the B'nai Elohim. Yeah. Uh, then, then uh, and so, so Heiser argues that that's what Eden was. That's what he is intent for the Garden of Eden was to be his his earthly council, his place of meeting with... Um, Essentially Rivendell. Yeah. Right? In, a, in a way, yeah. Where the fellowship meets together, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of. Um, I also think, um, you know, as, as Kyle pointed out, that in the Adamic Covenant, there's this um, expectation to, uh, you know, form new family units and from those new family units to create new human beings and then to propagate and fill the earth. If you fast forward to Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, one of the things, one of the, the motivating factors behind the Tower of Babel is that they didn't want to fill the earth. They didn't want to scatter out. They said, we need to build this tower lest we be dispersed over the entire face of the earth. So they were they were bowing their back against the idea that they should spread out and actually fulfill the Adamic mandate to populate the earth and and uh, you know bring order throughout the entire planet. They wanted to just sort of um, you know push back against that at some level. You know, I, I didn't say anything when we were talking about the you know the whether the culture is anti family or, or sort of resistant to... I thought maybe you just took a contrary opinion, didn't yeah. want to voice it. No. What I, what I, actually, what I was sitting there thinking about was, um, I think it's always, it's easy to believe that we have some uniquely bad situation uh, as it relates to the family. But I think from the very beginning since the fall, since we're looking at Genesis, the family has been a... a uh, a point of conflict because of our fallenness. So the first thing that happened after the fall of much significance was a murder within the family rooted in jealousy and interestingly enough for our current understanding, a lack of affirmation because God would not affirm and approve of, let's just say the lifestyle choice or at least the offering made. Uh, it, it built up resentment and resulted in violence against someone who was innocent uh, and had made different lifestyle choices and different choices about uh, the uh, the offering that he was going to make to God. And so 
I think my point is, I think from the beginning of time since the fall, the family has been a flashpoint. Um, and I think um, that's not an accident because I think the satanic intent is to, as we've talked about before, unwind all the things that God said was good about his creation, <clears throat> including his purpose for, for human beings. I think that's on point. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say that we could measure the goodness or badness um, of any society based on how well it contributes or fosters family flourishing. Yeah. So I think the family throughout history from the beginning of time in the garden and then moving through all the Jacob, you know, narratives and chronicles and all the way to Joseph in Egypt and then on down through the patriarchs, you know, the family is moving through the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys of different societies that either prop up the family and offer uh, offered an opportunity su- to succeed or sacrifice their babies to Molech, you know, and put their wives in prostitution, right? Like, and sell their daughters to rapists, like the, what you see with Lot in, um, uh, where, where was Lot from? Sodom, yeah. Well, he wasn't the from grief. there, but he was. He I was, was going to say Nineveh. And... He might as well have been from Nineveh. <laughs> Well, Nineveh um, wasn't much better for any of that either. No, it wasn't. So you've got, so in other words, the question is our, I think your point is well taken. We're not, we don't find ourselves necessarily in a new position. I think it may be new for where the, we are. The mechanics of what's happening are new because of technology, I think. And, and I think maybe we're coming down from a peak into yeah. a valley yeah, um, in, our, in our country. But, but it's, not, it's not new in world history. Mm-hmm. standards right. that we would that we would find ourselves in another valley where the family is not given opportunity to thrive and no, flourish certainly not i mean the first way that that satan when he entered the garden to your point about keeping the garden uh adam wasn't given the job of like just gardening he was also the guardian of the garden and so his job was to keep it a garden and to keep it a place that would be um safe and the the place for his family and uh all of a sudden we find a serpent in it talking to eve uh, which means that Adam must have been sleeping or something because that would have been his job to, to sniff that out. And then the first thing that the devil does is he goes to Eve and he tries to sow distrust between not only uh, Eve and God, but even Adam because he's asking her questions that she would have had to have gotten from Adam himself. And so there's this immediate attempt to try and dismantle the good design that God gave between husband and wife and then between God and his people. And then we see that in uh, Genesis chapter 3, whenever God uh, curses humanity and says, listen, this is the way that things are going to be now. He, he tells them all the relationships that existed within them as a family. You know, he created them to be one flesh of one accord, um, to be bone of bone and flesh of flesh, perfect unity, perfect uh, unity of purpose, uh, perfect intimacy between one another, relationships full of life and uh, full of love. He immediately says, because of sin, the, one of the most radical res, uh, results of that is going to be that the wife is going to, uh, it says, uh, your desire will be for, but really the better word is against. Your desire will be against your husband. So there will be conflict in the marriage because of that. And then the one job I gave specific to the woman of being able to bring forth life to have children, that itself will be painful and frustrating to you. And then all the job that I gave to Adam about um, 
working the ground and all these things, his position within that marriage relationship is also going to be frustrated. And so sin's effect upon the family is always magnified Mm -hmm. because that's the place where God's glory was intended to be most clear. Mm -hmm. And so when we're in Christ, um, yeah, because I see, you know, in Genesis that none of us were meant to go with this alone. You know, the task was for you to be together. You know, it was the one flesh Kyle just talked about. Um, So nobody gets to go rogue and do their own thing, and you need the helpmate, right? And so when you get to Ephesians and Paul gives uh, the instruction to husbands and wives, he's sort of recapturing God's good design there. Wives, submit to your husbands. Follow after the lead. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so you see... In my mind, I'm bringing this back together. This is what God intended as far as how you function together. And uh, that's the antidote to what society is trying to rip apart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you see, you know, today, so take some of the laws that were, you know, Kyle mentioned Obergefell, and there's others also, um, and more and more coming down the pike every day, uh, you know, trying to legalize different forms of sexual licentiousness. Mm-hmm. Um, the laws that we had in place. You know, laws, for instance, that criminalize sodomy, um, laws that prevented divorce, laws that, um, uh, you know, prevented bigamy um, or polygamy. Um, all of these, all of these laws weren't in place because you know Christians were being spoil sports, right? Which is which is kind of the prevailing narrative in the culture right now. Is we got had a bunch of religious <coughs> men in control, and they were sort of spinning um, their own webs of control and power to keep things the way they like them and women under their thumb. But the reality is all of our laws were set up to protect families and individuals from the havoc that sin wants to wreak in our lives Mm. and in our societies. And we are systematically, one by one, peeling back the barriers that wisdom, the wisdom of the ages had built and set up, like the Christian West for centuries had built a system of laws and, and customs and traditions and things that were, that were contributing to the family's flourishing. Not that we had a perfect society because sin exists in all of us, but we, have, we are now doing our level best to tear apart those protections. Well, and I think there was a recognition to your point, even though you know nothing about the family in our society was ever perfect, there was a recognition that the family is pre-political, that the family is not something the state gets to define. It's something that exists and the state must recognize. Um, and I think it's kind of been flipped now. We're yeah. now in the stage philosophically where we think society is waiting on the state to tell us what a family is, what a family can be. Mm-hmm. And that was never, one, God's design, or two, really a fair way of looking at human society yeah. uh, long but be- long before you had governments you had to have families mm-hmm. um, and most of our government structures were de- were adapted from the family structures that existed in the cultures already and i would say it's not just the state now but it's also the corporation you know um the, the corporate uh, outgrowth of the industrial revolution i think has done a lot to redefine what it means to be family for us um, and they're the ones who tell us how we can work, what our shared endeavors can and cannot be. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot in our society that's not necessarily for the the, the flourishing and thriving of Yeah, of so the God, God commands be fruitful and multiply, and yet we're fighting for laws in our society to uphold uh, the right to destroy babies. Mm-hmm.
you know, mm-hmm. this is completely contradictory to what God yeah. has commanded. And, uh, and, I, and I know this is still somewhat of a controversial topic among Christians, but even the topic of birth control. There was a time in, in American history when every Christian denomination in existence universally, univocally, uh, condemned the use of birth control, and the church always had. And it wasn't until much later when the Episcopalians actually said, no, I think we're going to allow it for married couples, but for married couples only, that the door was open to Christian capitulation, to the demand for removing the centrality of reproduction from the sex act, from the human sex act. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's no wonder if we come to despise eggs, that we will come to see no reason to keep the chicken, right? Like, when, when, when you forget what a thing is for, um, you, you, you come to despise the thing itself. And I think that as a culture, our, the way that we treat gender, this whole idea of gender fluidity, is only born within a society that has such great contempt for reproduction and thinks that it's found a way to master it through technology. Um, well, and a lot of, I think a lot of Christians have sort of bought into the idea that we can make the family simply about sort of a mutual affirming circle of people. Right. Keith, any you mentioned. Circle. Yeah, any as circle. As long as it's affirming. Yeah, but, and so if we make affirmation, if we make sort of the psychological benefit of relationship the key idea that makes something a family, then reproduction becomes this sort of unhappy byproduct of people who are just really trying to affirm one another and love one another, make everybody feel good. But if you believe that the human, that the human family was created for a purpose, mm-hmm. um, a purpose that's never eradicated, by the way, you know, uh-huh. in uh, a lot of people want to point to uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission as the replacement of Genesis 1 with the, the how are we saying, Adamic covenant? I've never figured out how to say Adam as an adjective. You, so long as you mumble, we'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> the, the covenant. Um, yeah, just slur it together. <laughs> when you, yeah. it, it wasn't a replacement of that. It was a, it was a furtherance. It was a development. It was a clarification for the church of, hey, this is how you further accomplish mm-hmm. what you got all the way back in Genesis 1 with clarity now that we have the new covenant, yeah. being not only to uh, create more humans, but create more image bearers of Christ. Yes. Um, even in uh, 1 Timothy 5, you get the affirmation of, listen, you who are in the church, you know, the church is created to be the family of God, but if you don't take care of your biological family, you're not doing your job. Well, and, and by the way, it wasn't, it wasn't biological family, it was the members of your household, okay? So oikos is a very broad Greek term that is a, new test, is a, is a first century idea of an entire household economy that included your slaves, your servants, their families any friends, even any strangers living within your own family, household, economy, working, striving together. It was all of those people together included your household. A father, the patriarch, okay? And, you know, the culture's down with the patriarchy. We might want to talk about that a little bit. Um, But the patriarch was given the task of being the provider for that entire network of interdependent individuals. It was the oikos, which is where we get our term economy, the law of the household, eco-namas, right? Oikos-namas law. Um, so, uh, I, Kyle, I also love your point that God still loves the family. Like, it's not something he did away with 
It's not like he moved on from that to yeah. something else when he went to Israel. You know, um, he loves the family. In fact, I think one of the coolest ways we see God's love for the family is in His uh, absolute um, passion uh, for orphans and widows. Yeah. yeah, he is. He is serious about the call for his people to take care of orphans and wid- widows because they are precisely those people who've been deprived of fathers. But even then, so actually to that point in the Old Testament, I think it says God is a husband to the widows. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And a father to the fatherless. Right. He places um, the lonely in families. It's throughout scriptures. Yeah. Um, I, but even then, I think there's a hierarchy of obligations that are established. You kind of piece this together in the New Testament. Uh, the church has an obligation to the widows, but the first obligation is is from their fa- their own family, their household. Yeah, it says I think in Second Timothy mm-hmm. maybe, um, and so you know families have this primary obligation to care for families. Individuals have a primary obligation to provide for themselves, and when all that falls through, it becomes the church's calling to help those people. But here's my point: the the church coming into existence on the heels of Jesus' resurrection doesn't under, do away with the centrality or obligations of the family. The family is a thing. It, God wove into the fabric of creation, and even in the church age, if you talk about these ages or epochs, even in the church age, the family obligations, in some cases, take precedence over the churches. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think sometimes there's a concern that if we elevate the family, we have to, by necessity, sort of downgrade people, you know, uh, who are single, either by choice or by circumstance, um, people who are widows, who are disconnected from these family units. And I think that's just a really, really shallow way of looking at what we're talking about here and what the Bible says about family. You mentioned um, the idea that uh, God puts the widows in a family. Uh, one of my favorite phrases uh, for that is uh, Psalm 113, where it finishes by saying he gives the barren woman a home and makes her the mother of children. Mm-hmm. The idea being that God finds a way to connect people to the people that need to care for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see this in the New Testament uh, church in Acts, where the point was, if people are disconnected from a community, let's give them a community, but we're not going to uh, eradicate the family structures that exist. We're going to use those as the mechanism to bring people into the broader family that is the people of God. I think our families, and this is something I think we need to cultivate as a facet of discipleship, to your point, is that we need to be much more hospitable and mm-hmm. uh, adoptive in our mentality toward people. I was having this conversation some years ago with a with a guy who was saying we should focus less on the family because it'll make all the single people feel bad. And my response was, no, we should adopt those single people into our family and make them a part of our lives. And I use this story to illustrate. Several years ago, there's a young woman in our church who had cancer um, and was going through chemotherapy. And my wife was really involved in uh, helping her get back and forth to the doctor and sort of being along with a couple of other women in this church, kind of a surrogate mom to her. And when the day came when her hair was falling out and she was going through this uh, process of chemo, I remember the day that she came over, this young woman came over to our house, and she and Becca went into the garage, and um, they shaved all her hair off. 
what remaining hair she had, and they would just <laughs> sit out there in the garage and cut her pretty hair, remaining hair off, and wept together. You know, and this is not, she was, you know, this is not a, oh, well, it's, there's not a, you know, fan, the existence of families represents some sort of um, uh, a rejection or dismissal of singleness. No, families should be a refuge within our churches for the best possible, for people who don't have them. The best possible right? way to minister to single people would be through would be by establishing the strongest possible set of families <laughs> yeah. um, to come who, to, who be, to come to their, their aid. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember when I was younger, um, Sunday nights, we had Sunday night church. <laughs> and so, uh, way back in, way back in the day. Dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there was a nursing home not too far from the church that we belonged to in Louisiana. And uh, somehow my dad had crossed or made uh, a, a a contact with this man that lived there, and I don't, he didn't have any family anymore. His name was Mr. Funston. And uh, every Sunday night, we picked Mr. Funston up to take him to church with us. And um, I can remember as a, when it all started, I was a little put off by it because it meant we had to leave home even earlier to go to church on Sunday nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but what I remember is sitting in the back seat, and Mr. Funston always got to sit up front. and. Um, he had a grovelly older man's voice, and uh, I just I found myself just loving this man when it was all said and done. And uh, so this idea of, of taking people in and making them part of the family unit, I, I could just see how much that meant to him. And uh, it was a good example my parents set and, and being sensitive to those that don't have uh, family around or or they've passed on and yeah jesus actually commanded this of us um when he told his disciples you know the disciples are sort of looking at jesus um i believe it's right after he's rejected um sort of the wishy-washy faith of the rich young ruler and and they're like well what about us we've given up we've given up everything to follow you, you know, which is kind of what, how you feel if you're in college. It's like, Jesus, I have nothing, and I still follow you. <laughs> you know, what am I going to get out of this? And uh, Jesus says, do not worry. You will in this life, um, for those that have given up uh, fathers, mothers, husbands, sons, daughters, uh, you'll receive uh, as many and more um, in this life. The idea that we're actually receiving a family, even in the church, um, which to me points to the reality that if the church is made up of strong, loving families, it only further increases the ability of that church to fulfill that design that Jesus has. I, I know. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. No, I know we don't have sort of unlimited time today, but I was going to maybe shift gears just a, a yeah. tiny bit. And, um, you know, this doesn't in no way diminishes the centrality of the family and God's design, but I think in the midst of a fallen world, um, it's also possible for us to um, put an emphasis on the family in the in the most um, noble from a most noble motivations, but which improperly elevate the family above other considerations. And um, and this is more sort of on the negative side. Um, I was reading an article this week. I, I wish I'd brought the link to it, but it's an article about this emerging phenomenon of p- 
people writing off their parents for not affirming their choices in life or for having different opinions about certain, some con, confluence of moral or political interests that, um, that don't align uh, between parents and children. And so these grown children are cutting off their parents and disowning them, essentially. It reminds me, honestly, of uh, Jesus said something really controversial and something uncomfortable that we don't talk about a lot, I don't think, in Christian churches in the West today. But he's, I'm going to read from this in Matthew chapter 10. He said this, Don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then, so at one level you can say, okay, he's talking about general conflict of some kind, but but he ties this specifically, weirdly enough, to the family. And he says, for, for, I've come to bring a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Uh, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think the interesting thing about this to me is what Jesus is really saying is that the family is going to be a central point of conflict over him. And that in the midst of those familial relationships, we're going to be forced to make a choice about whether we're elevating him to the position of preeminent authority or whether we're going to so value these people in our family that we, elevate, we idolize them. We make idols out of them and elevate them above Christ in terms of our, mm-hmm. our um, commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. so what, how does that fit with the centrality of the family and what's happening in our culture. We, we see this in the Old Testament as well when um, Samuel introduces the concept of a king to Israel. There was a time when God's people didn't have a king, and God wasn't against the idea of a king. He just wanted to be the one to provide it. He wanted to be the king. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think sometimes in America, in the West, we well, specifically America, I guess, and um, we, we don't really—no one here really knows what it's like— to live with the reality of a monarchy, right? A, a king who truly is elevated above everybody else and has rights and demands and privileges and commands and authority that people jolly well better sign up for. You know, one of the things that Samuel said about the king when he showed up was that he would take your sons and daughters. He has a right to, to, to use your family the way he needs to use it for the furtherance of the kingdom. Um, and this is something we see in Jesus. When God made a covenant, I think, with David, the whole idea of a monarchy went, like, bled into eternity. <laughs> now, there will never be a time in human history from that moment forward where there, was not, where there is not a king or the anticipation of a king ruling all things in the line of David. That king is Jesus. And I think some of what we see Jesus doing in Matthew is making some of the claims that a king will make. You know, you, there is a higher allegiance, even within your families, 
and, and so the family, because it's the most extraordinary place to say there's a higher allegiance than, right, than these people, Jesus is saying it's, it's within your families that your primary allegiance to my kingship is going to be tested. Um, and, and so I think there's a, Jesus introduces a transcendent um, hierarchy of values that the family has to fit within but our ultimate allegiance is is to Jesus. It's fealty. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Kyle, you've defined faith as fealty, and I, I before, and I, and I think that there's something to that here in what Jesus is saying. And this this isn't um, necessarily new, though it may be a development from what originally families were created to be. Families are not created to be their own uh, microcosm to do it themselves as they see fit. Even in Genesis one. They were given a task, and that task was the glory and purposes of God. And so a lot of times what you'll see is family turns so inward, and I think this is what a lot of people get worried about, and I think it's a, a legitimate worry. Because let's, let's be honest, sometimes being a family is awesome. Being a family is great, and there's so many benefits God built into it that you can turn so inward that you lose not only your ability to be, as you mentioned, Keith, hospitable and generous to those around you, especially to the household of faith, as Paul says, mm-hmm. but also you lose the ability to actually spur one another on toward loving good deeds. So I see this sometimes even in families, um, in, in youth, you'll have families who have all the best intentions for their children, but their children's schedules begin to dictate whether or not those chil- that, that family can come to church, mm-hmm. that family can prioritize discipleship because they want to promote the material success of their child, which is not a bad thing. And it's one of the things that families are called to pursue. But if you take that and you make it an idol, as you mentioned, it becomes this twisted shadow of what family was meant to be. I I see um, an interesting phenomenon taking place, and it's kind of makes the family, the intersection of the question of moral issues, faith, and trendy and hot cultural issues, and that is, one of the things I see happening is um, this uh, determination on the part of some children, and by, I say children, they're offspring, I should say. They may not be, they may not be children, they may be grown, they may be, you know, have reached, say, early adulthood or whatever, but this tendency to decide or, or to decide to declare themselves openly as um, say homosexual or transgender or non-binary or whatever you want to, you know, whatever the latest trendy num, you know, name of the day is. But um, and then to expect to be affirmed or demand by, by their affirmed. parents, knowing full well that their choices are at odds with their parents' moral and faith commitments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I see repeatedly is, in some cases. This becomes either a gigantic wedge in the family that, at least at the moment, is insurmountable, or I see parents alternatively capitulating and, and finding a way to jettison their historical mm-hmm. moral and faith commitments in order to affirm their son or daughter because they, you know, for, for a, you know, any number of reasons, the, the thought of not doing that is is un- inconceivable to them. Mm-hmm. I think the test comes in another form as well, and it's a little bit, it, it's a far less, um, uh, I, w- I want to say moral, 
context, but I don't know if I can actually say that. But I think our allegiance to Jesus, our faith in him is also tested, not only in those circumstances where as parents, kids come to us or loved ones, brothers, sisters, whoever, even parents. I know I've, I've, I, you know, my wife grew up with some people whose, um, whose dad suddenly came out that he was homosexual and asked the whole family to just love him for that and left mom and everybody else, you know? And so it happens top down and down up, you know? Um, but it's also, there's, there's another context and it's the context of physical, uh, illness. I think our love for our family members, sometimes we want God's will for their life or his plans and purposes for their life to align with our own hopes for the people in our lives that we love. And when there's some tragic illness or diagnosis that creeps in, there's a test that kind of comes to our faith and we ask ourselves, well, can I trust God with my family? Is God's will for my family really um, for us to prosper? What's this about? Mm. What's God up to? You know, I, th- I see that as one of the testing grounds for faith as well. And our love for the, our family members, good love, godly love for our family members becomes a battleground um, for our faith. And so I think that's, that's I, don't, I don't know how deeply we want to plumb um, that line of thinking, but I think that's also there. Yeah, I think it can easily be viewed as an inconvenience whenever you have to take responsibility for people that are sick. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a wrong attitude of heart, but it's, I think it's one of the things uh, the Lord may use to test us or shape us to see how um, committed we are to our responsibility of taking care of parents, grandparents, family, you know. And um, for those that have been in the midst of that kind of stuff before, you find that there's a blessing. The Lord mm-hmm. is certainly shaping things in you, um, a new perspective and understanding of, of why this is important. But hmm. So we have a... Ben and I have a family member who has adopted a whole house full of special needs kids. And they have three of their own kids that they that are born in their bodies. And, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, sort of presume, well, that's just a difficult situation. And, boy, what a burden on these healthy kids to have all these adopted siblings that are special needs. But what I have observed is that it's it's actually cultivated a surprising maturity in in the <clears throat> the non-special needs kids and a surprising uh depth of insight about people and and a lack of expectation that they should not serve a lack of expectation that the world revolves around them uh-huh. you know so there's been an sort of in our observation a kind of a shocking, interesting, uh, gratifying um, effect on these kids that don't have special needs in terms of sort of a diminished self-centeredness, a diminished self-orientation mm. in some ways mm. that is kind of an interesting and maybe for us at least unexpected artifact of that. I mean, they could, I mean, everybody makes their choices and they could just sort of live with resentment. Uh, that you know, so much of their life revolves around their less able 
uh, siblings, but it's it just it doesn't seem to work out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ben, your point is that you know the whole question of suffering raises questions about what's got up to. That might be a good talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, a good podcast to spend yeah. a whole session on sometime because yeah. I think uh, the whole question of suffering and heartache and loss are are obstacles for many people mm-hmm. to faith. And and I, the the thing I'll just say about that is, I think we often blame the wrong person mm-hmm. because we have a bad theology. Mm-hmm. We'll see um, that in Ruth as we get started. Huh? We'll see that in our series on Ruth as we get yeah. started. Yeah, yeah, Naomi's got a perspective yeah. on God that may not align with reality. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, look, I want us to try to share some closing thoughts here on the family, God's purposes for the family. Um, and feel free to sort of riff on whatever theme or thread you want to you want to pick back up as we as we wrap up our conversation. I think once again, maybe we were ambitious in tackling such a broad topic. We may need to revisit marriage. We may need to revisit child rearing. You know, yeah, a lot at of what things. point is it? If we've done enough of these that we know this, is it foolhardy instead of ambitious at this point? <laughs> no, it's just only ever ambitious. Um, so, so I'd like to get some closing thoughts, and maybe there's a way for you to tie in the family to some other first principle and offer some offer some wisdom to families out there who re- genuinely want to please the Lord as a family um, you know and might be listening to, to our conversation today I'll start and say that as as great as family is you know I was blessed by growing up in a, in a godly home um, with believing parents believing siblings um, and now I get to be married, and, and, and it's all wonderful. I, what, what I would advise people who listen to this, make your family an outpost of the kingdom of God, that your family, your home, all of it is given to you for a purpose, um, that your marriage is designed by God to be a place of welcome for those that need uh, safety and security and blessing and wisdom and love. Um, for those people that have children in their home, make your home the place where all the neighborhood kids want to go. Um, make your house the place where people want to spend Easter and Christmas um, and so that Jesus can be made known in that place. Um, our homes do not belong to us. Our families do not belong to us only. Um, they are to be used for, for Christ. Yeah, I'd just say um, you need your spouse to make this work. You know, you need to be on the same page together. You see this uh, Eve, Adam um, not really stepping up and doing what he should have done when the serpent was talking to Eve. And um, and so I think when your kids see you and your spouse on the same page in the convictions and, and as you teach them the way in the ways of the Lord and they, they see that not only in what you're saying but in how you live and practice these things, um, it's it's a it's a strong force that helps reinforce um, your teachings and and you know we pray that it's something that God will cement in their minds and return to. We know it's not a, a promise that they'll never go astray because um, we've all been through stuff that with I mean if those of us that have had kids long enough you know they make their choices like we've said and um, but I, I just think. Um, husbands and wives being united and understanding 
the, their purpose within the family is really important, and um, the payoff is great whenever they see mom and dad sticking together and hmm. uh, supporting each other and what they what they do and what they say. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> maybe to amplify on on what Van said, I think you know if you look back in Genesis. There's this notion that God made man and that he sort of handcrafted Eve with a very um, sort of uh, adjacent but um, amplified role uh, oriented toward her husband that, as Kyle pointed out, kind of got distorted at the fall in some ways. But um, you see differences between men and women today. Uh, notwithstanding the society's determination to pretend like, you know, those things don't exist, is kind of putting his fingers in his ears and going, na 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 you know, trying <laughs> yeah. not to not to see or hear any of that. But um but in reality, that's just the case. Here's the reality. For a man with a good wife, his wife enriches his life in ways that are inestimable. Um she has an ability to build beauty and warmth in a home that a man left to his own won't do. And so my advice is, if you're wanting wisdom, to all the men who, all the men, maybe for the two men listening to this (laughs) podcast or however many it is, let your wife do that. Turn her loose to, to build a warm and beautiful home together for you and your children in a way that don't begrudge her that instinct. Uh, let her contribute beauty and enrich your your life with warmth and love and and comfort and um, love. Um, just just let her do that and don't put obstacles in her way and don't fail to recognize that she's uniquely crafted to do those kinds of things in your life. Yeah. Um. And for those of you wondering whether that's a sexist remark, uh, it is. In the most biblical, God-intended sort of way, there are unique uh, purposes that God has for men and women, and it's wonderful. And the church needs to be the place where that kind of stuff is celebrated. I'll add, I'll add this to this whole wrap-up. I was not long ago afforded a, a unique uh, opportunity and privilege to do some a, a fair bit of deep research on the question of the family, in particular fatherhood. And I uncovered some pretty alarming, astonishing things about the nature of fatherhood. Um, there's a psychology uh, known as attachment theory, and it's this idea that you can predict a child's, the health of a child's um, relationships in his or her emerging adulthood by the level of his or her attachment to his mom or her mom. And there was a couple of guys who wanted to do their own set of tests to determine whether or not you could determine the retention of faith in God So by the same metric. So does the level of one's attachment to their mom also predict the health and retention of their faith and attachment to God later in their lives, in their emerging adulthood? And surprise, surprise, no, it didn't. They thought it would because it's also an interpersonal relationship like our friendships are. They found that one's attachment to mom had almost no predictive 
um, merit for, 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 for understanding a person's emerging retention of faith. Do you retain your faith in God in emerging adulthood or not? But what did have a pre- uh, predict that, that, that exactly, to the tune of about 80%, was a person's attachment to their father. The presence of a father in the home is an immensely powerful thing for passing on faith and values to the next generation. And if we really believe we've got an enemy, then I think dads need to wake up to the reality that we have an enemy who is pulling every string he knows how to pull to cut the head off the family. And by head of the family, I mean in the sense that the scriptures talk about the father and the husband being the head of the family. Um, I think to the extent that dads can not be absent, to the extent that dads can prioritize time with their sons and daughters, blessing them, teaching them skills, um, passing on traditions, telling stories. These are, these are things that will reap a huge harvest in faith later on in their lives. Um, it's not a guarantee, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty cool thing to see in action when it works out. So anyway, that's what I'll say about that. Thanks, guys. As we noted today, God's design for the family is under attack and has been throughout history. Everything from our children's education and their God-given gender to the importance of moms and dads staying together are in the crosshairs of the enemy. As believers, we must take seriously the responsibility that God has given us to lead our families in His ways in order to be the witnesses He's called us to be. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation and share your thoughts and ideas with us by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.